Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor here at St. Paul's Cathedral, and it is my real pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here this evening for this event on post-capitalism, sponsored by our own St. Paul's Institute and Penguin Books, the publisher of Paul Mason's book of the same title. I suppose many look at the church and think that we're ultimately concerned with how to be loyal to the past. Whereas that's often a good question, it seems to me that where people of religious faith and those of other commitments and goodwill can urgently come together is around the more important question of how can we be loyal to the future. And not just our own future, but a shared future, including those who have become marginalized through inequality and poverty, as well as those who suffer injustice or discrimination because of such things as gender or sexuality or ethnicity. This question about the future is complex and easy today to avoid if you want to, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge, asked Eliot, and where is the knowledge we have lost in information? But here we try and bring difficult questions and thoughtful responses to them together under this dome. And tonight is the latest in this tradition as we ask what is at the heart of capitalism and whether indeed capitalism has a heart. And what are its loyalties to our shared future? These are questions that scrutinize something of who we have become and of whether we're indeed even recognizable to ourselves and whether change needs to be empowered if we're to continue calling ourselves a human society. Those who are just about to be introduced to you are very well placed to help us look at all these issues right in the eye with intellectual passion and imagination rooted in a sense of purpose. And to introduce them and to chair the evening, we're thrilled to welcome Elizabeth Oldfield, who is the director of Theos, the religion and society think tank. Prior to joining Theos, Elizabeth worked in BBC Radio on such programs as The Moral Maze. And St. Paul's Institute has a very strong and productive partnership with Theos for which we're very grateful indeed. And I know that I'm placing you now in very safe and even commanding hands. So welcome to you all again. And Elizabeth, let the evening begin. Thank you, Mark. Well, the sheer numbers of you here tonight a testament to just how live the questions we're going to be talking about this evening are, and perhaps still are. We have come to understand, I think, as a society, how much the economic systems around the movement of goods and money impact our everyday lives, and indeed the direction of our society as a whole. In some ways, this is one debate that needs little contextualizing you would have had to have been living under a rock for the last 10 years to have failed to observe the tumultuous events taking place around us. 
from the, 200, from the 2007 credit crunch to the Occupy movement, part of which camped outside those very doors, to the more recent events in Greece. These have been, as the Chinese proverb goes, interesting times. There have been many analyses of the problems and weaknesses of our current system, but far fewer concrete alternatives proposed. And we are here tonight to discuss one such possible alternative. Before we get to that, and before I introduce our speakers, a few practical notes. First, I think you might agree that one of the problems with discussing economics is that many of us who haven't studied it can feel baffled and alienated by its complexity. It sometimes takes on the status of Gnostic secret knowledge known only to a few. I am unapologetically no economist. <laughs> Part of my role tonight as chair is to ensure that we can all follow proceedings. Therefore, if anyone on the panel, or indeed any of you in the audience, stray into unfamiliar technical jargon, I will be getting out my metaphorical jargon klaxon and asking you to clarify. Understanding and having opinions on something as fundamental to our lives as the economy should not be the preserve of the few. Secondly, thrilled as we are to have our eminent panel here today, it's you, this very large audience, who are our most honoured guests. So a whole half of this event will be dedicated to your questions. Now, there are two ways you can ask a question. You should have a piece of paper inside your program. You can write your question on that. If you would like to ask it personally from the microphone later, please write your question and your name as legibly as possible. You can also, if you have a smartphone or a tablet, ask your question via Twitter, and the hashtag is postcapitalism. Please be thinking about those as we go along. Once you've written your question on your piece of paper, just hold it up and one of the stewards you'll see around will come and collect it from you. If you'd rather not come up to the mic, perhaps don't put your name on it. Please keep those questions really as succinct as you can so we can have as many of them as possible. And panelists, please keep your speeches as succinct as you can. I will be holding you to time and asking you to shorten your answers. We really want to get as much debate packed into tonight as we can. Please don't take any photographs, and if you're not tweeting a question, we ask that you keep your phones off, or at the very least, on silent. Great. Practicalities done with. Let's get to the main event. You have full speaker biographies in your program, so I'm just going to say a few words about each. Responding to Paul Mason, we have Anne Pettifor, who is an author and economist, probably best known to many of us for her leadership of the Jubilee 2000 campaign, which successfully brought about significant debt reduction for the poorest countries. She continues to work and write on international finance, the sovereign debt of the poorest countries, the rise in sovereign corporate and private debt in OECD, economies. And her latest book, Just Money, How Society Can Break the Despotic Power of Finance, was published in 2014. Also responding, we have Philip Blond, an academic, journalist, and author. Philip founded the think tank Respublica and is the author of Red Tory, which sought to redefine the center ground of British politics around the ideas of civil association, mutual ownership, and shared enterprise. Our two respondents will speak after our keynote for this evening, Paul Mason. 
as most of you know, because you're here tonight. Paul is a journalist and broadcaster who served as economics editor of Channel 4 News and previously economics editor of Newsnight. He's been twice shortlisted for the Orwell Prize, and he was named the Royal Television Society's Specialist Reporter of the Year in 2012 for his courage, coverage of the economic crisis and social unrest in Southern Europe. And now we're going to hand over to Paul. Thank you. As you will here, it's quite difficult to speak at normal pace in this space. It suits ecclesiastical um, handing down of truth. Um, I will really try to avoid ending every sentence with a plain song type thing. Um, but what we really need to do is to find spaces we can discuss this. It's not talking about a networked economy and a, and a society of networked people is a bit ironic in this space. But in another way, it's a good space to be discussing what comes after capitalism. Because, apparently buried under the depths of this, Wren couldn't find it, but there, there should be the remains of something Roman. We think a temple to Diana. Before this place, there was a medieval cathedral. Now there is this. And these three lives of the top of this hill correspond to a concept that economists call modes of production. Big 500 year or more economic systems which, co which can be defined by the way that we relate to each other, by the way property is held, by the way hierarchies are defined. So you've got the slave society that produces the Roman Empire. You have feudalism, the society based on obligation and land holding and the obligation to do military service, which produces the Gothic cathedral and the Anglo-Saxon cathedral, the church that came before it. And then Wren, at the very dawn of mercantile capitalism, through a tax on coal, builds this. So it's an obvious question, what comes after? And in fact, it's great to be asking it in a church because to the church, it's a second order question. The first order question is what comes after human life? So asking yourself, could something replace capitalism shouldn't be seen as is, is in any way a, a, an impudent, let alone heretic question. And that's the question I've asked in my book. I, of course, loads of people have be before me tried to think through and even predict the way capitalism would end. And the common retort to them is to say, well, okay, it never does. It always adapts to the problems created by itself and by its, by its environment, by the non-capitalist world, by the, by the, by the problems of the, of the ecosystem or the problems of demographics. That's true. So, what, so let me be clear from the beginning that in proposing the possibility of a move beyond capitalism, my starting point is that this is a complex and adaptive system that has lost its capacity to adapt. 
And the reason it has done so is because of the rise of information technology. What's the evidence for that? Well, item one is what's happened to neoliberalism. By neoliberalism, I mean the whole world system as it's existed since the mid-1980s. Other people mean the ideology of Ayn Rand, of uh, the Mont Pelerin Society, of Milton Friedman. That's also neoliberalism. But the object I wish us to study is the whole system. The economy, the free market, globalized economy that, it, that we created from the late 1980s onwards. I argue that that economic model is broken. The, the short version, because the combination of time and the weird echoiness of this place means it has to be a short version, is this. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism's successes were all based on what we call fiat money. That is money created by states and central banks from nothing with no relationship to precious metal, nor indeed to, to the amount of real economic activity that is going on. And fiat money, from 1973 onwards, proves to be really, really useful and in creating a highly dynamic society. In fact, the neoliberal system oversees possibly the greatest advance in general human economic well-being ever. Some economists even believe you can measure it against, for example, what happened at the time when this place was built and say it is an even greater advance than the, dis than the discovery and plunder of the Americas. But fiat money is great as long as you have an economy that, doesn't exist, that does not consist of workers. Because at the same time that fiat money allows us to expand the money supply and expand economic activity in the face of the repeated crises that capitalism creates, so every crisis is met with the cheapening of money, the expansion of bank credit, and the printing, in the last analysis, the, the latest case, of $12 trillion worth of free money, quantitative easing. That's fine. But what, what neoliberalism also did, non-coincidentally, I argue, to the working class, was it destroyed its capability to defend its share of the income of society. So the wage share declines markedly across all advanced societies in the period of neoliberalism. And why is that a problem? Because if you want to endlessly expand credit against a wage share that is falling and that real incomes that are stagnating, and in America, median real incomes for men stagnate from 1973 right the way through to the day Lehman Brothers goes bust and then fall. If you want to have endlessly expanding credit against a static base of income, something is going to go keep going wrong. And the evidence presented to us by the last 20 years is that after a kind of heroic phase of, of development in the 90s, things do go wrong. You get the Asian crash, you get the dot-com crash, you get 2008, and something else is coming. We don't know what, we don't know when, but there's a clear mismatch between the expansion of credit and the, and the deflating nature of the, of the global economy. So that's, that's the problem. 
there's a bigger problem with neoliberalism. By destroying the bargaining power of the workforce in developed societies, it's fine, you can create a, 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 a coffee bar business or a security guard business out of nowhere, it's, it's good. But what you do is you reduce the incentive on the whole system to innovate. It's easier to create the coffee bar or the security guard or the cleaning system than it is to do something innovative, to be the James Watt or the Richard Arkwright or the Wren of your era. And that's, in summary, the problem number one of neoliberalism's clear crisis-racked nature, crisis-ridden, boom-bust-ridden nature, and I would argue its inability to deploy the innovations it has come up with so far. But there's a way out. And the way out, I argue, is provided by what information technology has begun to do to economics. Information technology is not just another technology. It is transformative in three ways. First, I argue, and I go into this at some length in the book, so forgive the shortened version, that information technology corrodes the price system. Mainstream economics tells us that if something costs nothing to, to reproduce, its price will eventually, under free market con conditions of competition, fall close to zero. So the real price of anything that can produce, be produced by command C, command V, copy and paste, will go close to zero. The economist Paul Romer was the first person in 1990 to begin discussing this. But the zero price effect of information doesn't just apply to information. If I had PowerPoint, which I, thought, I think it would be a bit crazy to have PowerPoint, but up there somewhere would be the falling price curves of real things, like bandwidth, like storage, like I mean, digital storage, like silicon chips themselves, the billion switches on this, on the one-inch chip inside this iPad, falling you know, exponentially in price. The information layer is a layer of reality, and therefore the price of real things, not simply information, is, is depressed. But there's a catch, we'll come to it. The second thing we, that the information does is dissolve the link between work and wages. Everybody in this room knows what I am talking about. You sit on a plane to Brussels at 7 a.m. trying to keep your elbows to yourself with 300 other people who are doing what? Working. Does anybody ask what time work started? Does anybody care that we flip over to watch Homeland on our iPod or go to sleep? No, because we're working to target. At the low end, in this city, you will find cleaners who, who who go to work, text their manager, I'm here, six hours later, text their manager, I've left. The time is obsessively measured. What they do is not, they don't see the manager. Work and Something weird is happening to work and wages and work and non-work. The time is blurring and we are no longer obsessed with hours, but outputs and targets. The third thing, Information is doing something to ownership and hierarchy. As soon as we could produce something for free, collaboratively, and give it away, we did. Wikipedia, Linux, which runs all 500 of the top supercomputers in the world, Apache, another open source product, which runs half of all web servers. When I do this list, a lot of people in the commercial world often shout out, well, tell me something spectacular. 
I think these are spectacular. They are solutions that, which have become irreplaceable to the private sector, and yet they are collaboratively produced free things, produced in a non-managed space, non-hierarchically. So those are the three things. Price, work, ownership, stroke, hierarchy, all disrupted by information. But capitalism has a defense, and the defense mechanism are monopolies on a scale you have never seen, even if you have studied the history of monopoly capitalism. These giant tech companies exist not to do what the old monopolies, the Siemens and the Krupp and the Carnegie's did, which was to build scale for new industrial products in the 1890s and 1900s. They exist simply to protect the price so that a track on iTunes is 99p because Apple says it is. The supply and demand doesn't come into it. We could go again and again through examples, and in the book I do, of the way in which giant tech monopolies, A, defend price, and B, create commercial value from information we collectively produce and give away for free. The so-called externalities or spillovers that are crucial to the business models of all the tech giants are new. In the analog world of my dad, going to the pub and talking to each other produced a positive externality, a nice feeling, a community. In the digital world, it produces tangible, commercializable intellectual property for Facebook, Twitter, Google, as we converse with each other online. These business models, in other words, are entirely premised on the capture of that which is produced for free by people interacting. And my argument on that, to cut a long story short, is A, that doesn't last. We know what happens to systems that have to be imposed by lawyers and that are not granularly self-reproducing because we saw what happened to the Soviet Union. A system that simply ha exists because Apple has better IP lawyers than Spotify or because a certain minicab platform can walk into certain cities and, uh, and make the law as it goes along. That system is not the same as a fully functioning, granular, self-reproducing capitalism. And the other thing is, it's not the third industrial revolution. It's not dynamic in the way the Belle Epoque, the progressive era of the early 20th century was. So if all this is true, what do we do? I'll finish with this. I think it creates the possibility for a transition towards, a long transition, towards a society of abundance. Information is abundant. As the hippie ideologue Stuart Brand once said, it wants to be free. The information layer of, 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 of the world is making real things more abundant because we can, we can mine the supply of them. We can utilize capacity. We can utilize capacity intelligently. So if we are moving towards a situation of information abundance and, some, and the abundance of some things, which information can help to, then the, then the thing to do is to promote a transition whose out, outcome would be the following. Reducing the amount of work necessary on the planet to an absolute minimum. If you have abundant things and work reduced to an absolute minimum, you can do a lot of other things. You can have the ultimate human race work-life balance 
tilt towards the life bit. Reducing work to a minimum, of course, means strategically delinking it from incomes. You could do it through the basic income proposal, you could do it by making the state the employer of last resort. What we're talking about here is a long transition in which you incentivize and re-regulate the economy to incentivize the creation of free time in which to do the Wikipedias and the Apaches and the Linux and the other interactive and collaborative projects that we will do once we are freed up from a total hierarchical and property and market-based society. And of course, the other bit of it, which I always leave to the last, because you know this bit anyway, this is not the new bit, the other bit of it is zero carbon. The other bit of it is saving the planet. There's a huge amount of, in, of innovation going on in economic practice to try and promote the sensible and controlled shrinkage and hopefully eradication of a carbon-burning economy. That's good. People often refer to it as transition economics, but it isn't, because it has models of the Earth's climate with a billion data points, such as there exists on the NASA uh, model of the weather, and yet its understanding of the economy in, cl in, in climate often basically reduces the economy to a train set, a guiding hand, a, an energy requirement, and an input and an output. My argument is that we kind of know about carbon economics and the need to, to, to fight climate change, but we need to address with equal sophistication and resilience and debate this question of how we transmit, transition ourselves beyond the market, beyond state plus market, to a situation where at first we have state plus market plus collaborative, free, self-organized, horizontally organized, unmanaged <coughs> production, and then beyond that, and I finish here, the outcome of it is determined by a human revolution. And in the book, I try and, it's not a copper, but I, I try and say, well, look, we don't know. We don't know what the outcome will be because it depends on how human beings themselves take the networks, take the network uh, technology, and evolve themselves. The sociologist Manuel Castells calls the product of, this, of the information age, the human products of the information age, networked individuals. He says it's impossible to go back. You can't de-electrify a country. You can't de-network a society. The white wire people, as I call them, you know, people with white wire in their ear, in many cities now outnumber the people who still don't know how to read a GPS or can't work out what, how to order a, a, a coffee at Starbucks. That, that there, is, that there is a new kind of human being emerging and they will determine the outcome of the long transition. Now, of course, of course, it has been attempted many times before to describe a society of abundance, community, collaboration, in which the human in human rights, the human bit, is, is, is valued and the hierarchy is shrunken until the century in which this place was built or the century before this place was built. Such, such, a, such experiments were always, always repressed and you know, put to the sword. It, they existed within religious thinking, the so-called heresies of the early and, and high Middle Ages. 
Afterwards, we had utopian socialism. Utopian socialism was utopian because it was attempted with the human beings with brains scarred by early industrialization and scarcity. But our brains are not scarred. We are some of the freest and most intelligent people ever living and have the greatest store of knowledge to draw on that anybody has ever had. And we have the beginnings of abundance. And out of this, we can do something. That is it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you very much for having me here, Elizabeth. Um, it is really wonderful to see this many people willing to talk about the subject, willing to listen and to engage on the subject, and I'm really thrilled to be here. I also want to recommend this book. I have strong reservations about it, and I'll express those, but it's in a fantastic read. Paul is a tiring intellect, and he challenged me at a whole range of levels. In fact, he's left me with a reading list that's quite formidable, including Bogdanov's Red Star, which I hadn't even heard of before. So um, he, is, he, he outlines a vision that I think is not entirely improbable, but could also be defined as utopian. In this unequal and divided world, we need more utopians. So despite my own pessimism about his thesis, I do recommend that you read this book. Throughout the book, Mason presents capitalism as an apparently abstract force, subject to what he calls mutations, a word that pops up frequently. A mutation is a natural process that changes a DNA sequence in, for example, a virus. So for Mason, capitalism is like a virus that may mutate into something more benign, collaborative, as he says, with free information and, and collaborative forms of human activity. By defining capitalism in this way, in my view, Mason does not need to attempt to identify and differentiate between the forces or the groups of individuals driving capitalism. Are they today's oligopolists? Are they the, the drivers behind, for example, Amazon, Microsoft and Apple? Are they organized in, for example, the Bilderberg Group? And do they visit Davos each year? Or can they be found in Wall Street and in Frankfurt in the city of London? Mason keeps us in the dark. Remarkably, his view of the working class is that the working class has agency over capitalism or has had agency over capitalism through the centuries. But capitalism itself does not, the dominant class, does not appear to have such power. Instead, it capitalism is subject to underlying forces that adapt and morph into 50-year patterns or mutations that rise and fall in long waves of capital investment in accordance with Kondratiev's theory of long waves. C capitalism's tendency, Mason writes, is not to collapse, but rather to mutate. There is one period and one chapter in the book, chapter four, in which Mason acknowledges that capitalism, in particular the finance sector, was once subdued. This is the post-war period known to most economists as the golden age of economics. 
Mason acknowledges that the crucial factor that underpinned economic reality in the 50s and 60s was a stable international currency system and the effect of suppression of financial markets. But he then goes on to argue that this was a transitory phase and, and that actually it sort of happened by accident. My main beef with Mason's book is that rather than define this period as one that was man-made, and it was man-made, designed largely by the genius John Maynard Keynes and his Cambridge colleagues, Mason defines this period as simply an upswing on stereotypes of the contractive um, wave. Once again, the implication is that this period of full employment of science-led innovation, of high productivity, high wages, consumption keeping pace with production, benign inflation, and marginal speculative finance is described as something beyond human agency, akin to the cycles of the moon. So neoliberals also like to dismiss this age as beyond our present-day ken. Neoliberals, too, would like us to feel impotent in the face of today's rapacious financial capitalism. But as the Golden Age proved, we are not impotent, and we are not the subjects of periodic abstract cycles. The Golden Age was constructed, designed, and implemented by a group of economists who congregated at Bretton Woods in 1944. The striking thing about the conference was that Roosevelt banned any bankers from attending, except for one whom he regarded as a tame banker. So Keynes and his colleagues confronted a form of capitalism that had wrought massive destruction of lives, livelihoods, and nations. They were surrounded by the wreckage of war, but they were not intimidated by the scale of the challenge they faced in confronting, subordinating, and managing global finance capitalism. And nor should we be. We are not the passive subjects of inexorable and inevitable cycles or Kondratiev waves of capitalism. We are masters of our own destiny. If only we and professional economists had the courage to identify, name, subordinate and manage the finance sector. So Mason makes frequent mention in his book of profits. But to my mind, today's capitalists are not really interested much in profits. Profits are something that is made by the industrial capitalist. It involves the industrial capitalist in engagement with the land on one hand and with labor on the other. But today's capitalists would rather not engage with either land which has its limitations, or with labor, which can be disruptive. Rather, they would like to engage in something, in, in creating what they call capital gains, the effortless gains of money from money, making money from money, the rentier economy. We are discussing Mason's book here in St. Paul's, Wren's great masterpiece, in the heart of the city of London. We are literally in the belly of the global financial beast, a sector or group of individuals and institutions that now wields what I call despotic power over the global economy. 
governments and apparently democratic institutions. And they've been strengthened by the crisis, not weakened. And so it is really important for us not to ignore them as a group and to the power that they wield. Now, Mason talks about the structure of the internet as a model for the evolution of capitalism, in which hierarchies are flattened, machines are free, and we're all far more collaborative. But I think this is a form of utopianism, where he sees collaboration, where he sees eroding of the price mechanism, crowdsourcing, open source software, I see usury in very high paywalls. Paywalls that have now barred most football and sports fans and cricket fans from enjoying, for example, mass public sporting events. Paywalls that will exclude millions of people from accessing sound investigative and balanced journalism. Paywalls that will pretty well prevent us from watching the BBC unless we pay a fee for that as the plans to privatize the BBC goes ahead, go ahead. So we're seeing a network society where he sees the collaboration and the positive aspects of a network society. I see Uber and Airbnb monetizing the desperation of people in the post-crisis economy while sounding generous and evoking a fantasy of community in an atomized population. Brian Chesky is the co-founder of Airbnb, and he uses words like revolution and movement to describe Airbnb. Making Airbnb, as Doug Henwood has said, the best capitalized revolution movement, revolutionary movement in history. So I would like to challenge some of these ideas, and I hope that we can do that in this debate, because I think we're living through an age of rentier capitalism, which is now very pervasive. All of us are beginning to think about how we can make money from an existing asset, whether it be our motor car and driving around, renting it out to people, whether it be our, the flat that we live in, our property, or someone else's property. And that rentier ca capitalism is, is usurious. And the church existed above all in the early days to challenge usury. This is the moment, it seems to me, of a grand scale of usury almost unheard of in our history. And for me, it's absolutely essential that we should challenge that. And I'm not sure that Paul does that in his book. And I hope we can do that in our debate tonight. Thank you very much. Stay there one moment. You just stay there one moment and explain what rentier capitalism is. I'm afraid I've been very nasty and pulled my jargon klaxon because I'm not sure all that many of us will know exactly what is meant by rentier capitalism. Oh dear, I'm in trouble with the chair. Um, rentier capitalism is earning money from an asset effortlessly. So if you own a property and you rent it out, you're earning money almost effortlessly. Of course, you have to maintain that property. If you lend money, if you're a banker and you lend money, the loan is your asset. You lend that to others and you effortlessly earn interest on that loan. That's what usury is. That's rentier capitalism.
It's a, a capitalism that doesn't dirty its hands by engaging with land and with labour, but expects to earn money ref effortlessly. Great, thank you very much. As Philip comes to the podium, do be holding up in the air your questions on your pieces of paper. Don't feel shy. Uh, the stewards will get to you quite quickly. Um, and remember to be tweeting in questions if you prefer to do that with the hashtag postcapitalism. Um, thanks very much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Anne. Um, uh, a great, great pleasure to be here. Let's begin at the beginning, um, if we will. I suppose the end of capitalism depends on how you define capitalism. If you define capitalism as essentially the creation of profit, if it follows, therefore, that some form of economic practice in our society is essentially no longer capable of creating profit, it follows that in that space at least, capitalism has ended. What I want to suggest to you is that is not, in my view, an adequate account of capitalism, essentially for two reasons. One is that there will never be a propertyless state, and I'll explain why. And secondly, that the real, uh, the definition of capitalism that I suspect most in the end would rather go for is that the triumph of non-human value over human value. And if we define capitalism in that way, property is secondary. Indeed, it's probably tertiary. So what I want to argue is that um, Paul's work, which I must say I found thrilling to read, it had more intellectual innovation in it than most intellectual books I read, and it's wonderful uh, that we have somebody uh, operating public journalism who's allowed and recognised to be an intellectual at that level. So I'd just like to say, thank goodness, that's the type of rich society we need to defend. But I want to question his definition of capitalism because I want to suggest that actually it's derivative and it doesn't address the problem. And then I want to suggest, finally, that the only real antidote to capitalism isn't the ending of property or profits, but it's actually morality. And that only morality and a return of morality, I know you all cringe, your inner, your inner Catholic or Protestant cringers when I use that word. And I want to explain why it shouldn't and why it's actually the only liberating agenda. And so I want to conclude with the idea that actually what Paul needs to be is less of an economist and more of a moralist. But let's get to that in a bit. Let's go to my first point, the ending of property. So what Paul, I think, has wonderfully analysed is how, is how in certain areas of our economy the, the price return or the price system has been broken such that it's tending to zero. And Paul, I think, has shown very well how modern forms of capitalism are erected around those technologies to protect the price system. And I take Anne's point, and I think she's made it very well. What Anne essentially is arguing is, Paul is too sanguine. The people who defend, uh, who defend essentially price-free products 
defend them through the fact that we like using them, and that won't cease. That, I think, is, is what I take to be Anne's point. But my point would be different. My point would be, let's accept the idea that what Paul said might be true, that for certain economic goods, the price will approach zero. So what? It doesn't follow that if the price of some economic goods approaches zero, the prices of all goods will approach zero. Let me give you one, well, let me give you two examples. The art market. Many of you I know will be patronizing Christie's, Sotheby's, and Bonhams. And when you are, what are you buying? You're not buying the infinitely reproducible, you're buying the utterly unique. And what is the utterly unique? And what is the price of that? Well, it's gone through the roof. You know what the single most successful product to invest in over the last decade has been? Well, it's one of these three, depending on your market. Classic cars, the fewer the better. Fine wine, a product noted for its scarcity. I've rarely found any fine wine, despite buying much of it. And thirdly, art. Even if we live in an economy where some goods become zero, what I would tend argue would happen is actually surplus would then pursue other goods. And surplus would then pursue other goods because human beings, especially in their current form, are acutely status-seeking and status-conscious. And that isn't going to be uh, challenged by getting some free stuff. And what I think is lacking in Paul's analysis is the idea that why, if in one field something becomes free, it becomes free in all fields. I don't think that's true, and I think it's demonstrably not true. And if we actually look, as I've said, I've named art, but I could also name land or housing. The nature of growing populations, the nature of family breakup, which is a huge factor in our current housing demand, means that on this finite earth, some goods are scarce. Status is one good that is scarce, and we will pursue relentlessly, pathologically, whatever will give us status, be it the right house, be it the right level of education, be it the art objects. So what I'm trying to suggest to you by these examples is there's something fundamentally derivative about the idea that the fundamental way to fight what's wrong is to fight profit or to fight surplus. Actually, the wonderful thing about being a human being is that we create surplus. This is what is unique, in my view, about human beings, is what is sufficient for our survival um, isn't exhausted by our capacity to produce it. We constantly produce surpluses. All human beings, I would argue, produce surpluses. What do we do with it? Do we use that surpluses in some Maoist vision where we all become alike and interchangeable and give them up? No, and nowhere in human history do we ever see that. What we do is we look after our own and we try to grow that own and we try to seek status. So what I'm saying is this project, which I view as really innovative and quite thrilling, isn't that radical isn't really radical at all. 
What I want to suggest to you would be a really radical transformation would be what it would be to change the nature of human beings, what it would be to change who we are. Now, Aristotle said that the only difference between human beings and other animals is human beings can change their nature, and he was right. And it's that ability that I think would mark the, the change and the transition to something new. Why I'm opposed to capitalism is that it upholds um, moneyed worth over human worth, over the value of old people, of very young people. What I want to do is to have human value as the source of valuation. Now, I would argue that the only agenda that, that can create that, and I would argue in human history it's the only agenda that has created that, is morality. And what is morality? It's not something repressive, telling you what you should and shouldn't do in your sex lives. Morality, if we look to its origin, is the vision of how we could live. It's the vision of how we could live and how we could create a world in which we live differently. Now, the fundamental thing conspiring against this isn't just neoliberal economics, it's liberalism and social liberalism. We have produced a world in which, quite frankly, there's very little communitarian between us. There's very little shared social goods. We don't produce social solidarity. And those that do, I would argue, are dwindling. And when we do invent social solidarity, particularly in this age, it's often terrible. It's around race, it's around class, it's around where you live. And the, the, the arrival of these dangerous nationalisms that we now see in Europe is, I think, indicative of that. So if, if we're going to really succeed, we have to recover what built this cathedral, and you may not know, but, uh, but the religious and moral vision that created a world in which equality wasn't viewed as something uniform, but was viewed as an equal opportunity for people to flourish and flourish differently, that moral agenda is the only radical political agenda. And remember that this was first born with the prophets who came to Judaism and said, even those who uh, the law has to be obeyed by the king. Until the Jewish prophets, the king was the source of all value. And with the Jewish prophets, you had the idea that the world ought to be other than it is. This is when politics began. This is when Aristotle's vision, before the time of Aristotle, was fulfilled by Judaism and carried on by the great religions. The disaster of our modern age is there is no secular alternative. We have no secular offer that can bind us into a new solidarity. That is the only real radical politics. And until we can create that moral offer, we're not going to do anything radical. Thank you. Thank you very much, all three. Um, we're going to have a few minutes now uh, for Paul to respond to the panelists, but shortly we'll be going to audience questions, so do keep tweeting and holding your questions in the air. Paul. Well, thank you for that. And I should have said at the start that both the, the other speakers on the panel are people who have influenced me both by their writing and their action, their activism and their politics. So, and I'm really pleased to be with you on the, on the platform. Let me just focus on... Uh, Let's clear one thing up about what, about what do I think about Airbnb and Uber. Um, I see, leaving aside my moral critique of, of, of any of them, what I would say is that, that 
the, the iconic tech giants of which I still don't think are justify their own market valuation. However, are companies that have whose bosses invented things, usually code, who or products, superbly designed products, and that we're able to scale those things and that they get the added bonus of a load of free information that they can monetize because they made real innovations that are that really raised human capital and labor. So Google Google, Microsoft, Apple, even Samsung, and even if on a good day, um, Facebook, I will put into that category. <laughs> um, but the rent-seeking platforms, the so-called unicorns, which are attracting multi-billion dollar valuations right now, are not in the same league because they don't have defensible IP. We can tell this because the office of one of them Uber was raided no less than twice in Amsterdam. Uh, this is, I don't call that a defensible, I, I economically defend, leave aside the morals, economically defensible business model. Um, if, it, if, you, if you can constantly find yourself, um, your collar being felt. I think we're in, a, we're in a late stage of the current boom-bust cycle and what it's characterized by, as always, is stupid money idiotic money chasing after companies that look like they are the holy grail, but they're not. So that's what I think the difference between them is. I think the interesting ones are the ones who have built the giant positions. The other thing about post-1945, uh, the golden age, well, yeah, it was a golden age, and uh, my cultural background is rooted in it, but it wasn't a golden age um, for sexual politics. It wasn't a golden age for a lot of other things. And let's not forget, Keynesianism collapsed under its own, um, under, under its own contradictions. It was no more durable than, than neoliberalism will turn out to be. But I do think, yes, on the question of agency, this, I do, this is what I think, that yes, people turn up at conferences in, in Bretton Woods or wherever and they design the world, but it only works, the design process, if you're cutting with the grain of technology, Econom the deep economy and the deep culture. And I think that's what Keynes and the people who built the post-1945 world were able to do. And that's what we have to do. To build a replacement to neoliberalism means, means cutting with the grain of how people want to live, how, people, how technology actually impacts and works, how technologies interoperate. And my big difference with the traditional 20th century left now is that I think that what is left of it, when it thinks at all about where we are going, thinks of it in terms of the 1910 book I describe in my book by Rudolf Hilferding, the Austrian Marxist, finance capital. We are in a world basically where you take control of the state, you take control of the giant monopolies, you use hierarchies and centralized direction to do something. Whether or not that was a good idea in the 20th century, it's a non-idea now because we live in a, in a networked, horizontally organized, individual-centered, globalized, non-national world. And the way beyond capitalism has to be built on all those things. Final point. On the question of, um, of, of Philip's thing about assets. See, look, of course assets are always, uh, 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 seem, their prices seem to be endlessly elastic in an upward direction until they're not and it collapses for a few years and things like the welfare state or the company pension system get wiped out. If it happens again, those of you who followed the Cypriot crisis will know what is going to be wiped out. This time it's people's bank accounts because there is no bailouts. 
there'll be bail-ins. But that's, that's not the real problem. The real problem is that an asset-based capitalism doesn't work if, as I said before, the incomes it's based on can't expand. And this is the, the reformulation of the old underconsumption problem that obsessed uh, you know, Marxists like Rosa Luxemburg and, and liberals like, like Keynes. It's not the underconsumption of the masses because their wages stagnate. It's the fact that it always provides a kind of anchor against which the credit system has to snap back. And as those of us who are professionals in the credit system know, it never snaps back to zero. It snaps back to below zero. It wipes things out. So I think that's the asset capitalism is, is just a product of fiat money and it will collapse if we don't dismantle it. Thank you. I can see our respondents itching uh, to just, get back, but we're going to bring in the audience at this point and you can respond through some of your answers, hopefully. Um, so we have three people, if you'd like to be making your way to the microphone to ask your questions. Sophia Butler-Cowdery, Lynn Thomas and Billy Ridges, if you'd like to make your way up. In the meantime, we have a question from Twitter for the panel. Do you think that capitalism is fully compatible with democracy and where do you feel the tensions lie? Maybe we'll uh, let yeah, um, Philip jump in first. I, I, here's a controversial thought. Um, I think we're clearly in a post-democratic age. If you look at the democracy index, it's going down and down. I think we're in the age now of popular authoritarianism. And I think that's because democracy hasn't delivered. And it hasn't delivered for uh, the people who originally argued for it in the 19th century. And I fear, and I'm with Carl Polanyi here, that I, I fear what's coming because, because essentially democracy by itself. That's why I always get quite upset when I, uh, with some assumptions on the left, everyone arguing democracy, oh, we solved it. It doesn't solve the fundamental problems. And, Many of dem the democratic outcomes start to look very much like outcomes in post-communist Russia or outcomes in China in the creation of concentration of wealth and new oligopolies. Democratic outcomes and non-democratic outcomes look similar. So what people, in my view, will vote for is popular authoritarians who promise to deliver for people where democracy has failed. That's what happened in Russia. That's why China uh, is arguably still, the regime there is still popular. And that's why I think Erdogan was voted for. So I think in that sense, we're already, democracy is already losing its legitimacy. Anything to add? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I want to disagree with that. I think democracy <coughs> has been captured. I think that, and I think, as I said earlier, the finance sector has captured large states, <laughs> looted those states, and effectively now governs through those states. So we have that situation where now taxpayers in Britain guarantee the banking system of Britain, which means that bankers can now be as reckless as they choose to be, and knowing that we are going to bail them out, we are going to be bailed in in the next mm. crisis. That causes, that undermines democracies. They have undermined, and it's a very specific attack on democracy and accountability, and the undermining of democracy it disillusions the public and leads them to look for strong people who, as Polanyi argued, strong men, who, as Polanyi argued, will protect them from the vagaries of market forces. 
these unaccountable, ruthless market forces, which our democratic institutions are not protecting us from because they've been captured. Think of our own, of our own institutions. So I, I think democracy is a threat because we are not resisting that capture of our very important constitution, uh, institutions. Thank you. Uh, our first three questioners seem a little shy. I'm going to say their names again. Sophia Butler-Cowdery, Lynn Thomas, and Billy Ridges. But we also have three more. David Parrish, Derek McCauley, and Ulpian Marina. Please do go and stand in an orderly queue behind the microphone to ask your question. But in the meantime, I'm going to ask another question from Twitter. Raju Burden asks, won't real actual change only come from ultra-tech advancements? And also, how would society look like with free energy? Well, well I think ultra-tech advancements, I don't know what they are, but uh, there's something much more prosaic, automation. The Oxford, Institute, Oxford Internet Institute thinks that about 40% of uh, jobs in the United States are automatable by the middle of the century. Um, I think so too, and I think that they ought to be. And what stops us taking advantage of the, of the potential for, to automate things, and what, is, what would that do? It would collapse the amount of labour needed to reproduce what we already have. We could produce more and work more, but we might choose to do the same and just work less. What stops us is the, is the social arrangement, or Marx would have called it the social relations of production, because we can't see beyond society and even utopias based on work. I argue in the book, as on the basis of an argument put forward by the French Marxist André Gortz, that we need to move beyond utopias based on work, and the best way to do that is to eradicate most work. So we should automate. So a radical automation project involves, doing what I said, delinking incomes from work. And we have to find sophisticated and durable ways to do that. We have to deploy political economy to do that. And uh, quantitative analysis is not going to be easy to do, but I think it is doable. And so, yes, um, I think that the sooner we deploy, the sooner we automate as much as we can, then we can get on with the part of our lives where we will be able to choose to to do psychoanalysis, to write a Wikipedia page, to grow vegetables on an allotment. That, in, in, a, in a sense, that is all the content of utopian radicalism is, is the ability to do what 40,000 years worth of humans haven't had the time to do. Thank you. Would either of you like to add anything, perhaps theologically, about the role <laughs> of work? Um, I, I believe in unalienated labour. And... Um, and I've never liked God, let's pursue leisure, not work, because leisure seems to me to be even more desperate and hopeless than, than, than work. And, and the people I know who pursue leisure for its own end often pursue it in fleeing from any form of meaningful human, human activity. Don't be hard on the Tory front bench, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, I, in part of me obviously likes this vision that... And I, I'm with William Morris in the sense that I believe that um, all human beings are creative and we have to find creative outlet for that. But for me, that would still be work and labour understood as that, rather than as some sort of leisure society that is always a form of passive consumption that's increasingly frustrating the more you watch it. Thank I mean, you. you're not happy after watching daytime TV. 
Okay. Some of you might be. Apologies. Forgive me. Um, and we'll come to you in a moment, but we have people waiting at the microphone. So uh, let's take your questions in groups of three and then allow the panel to respond, if that's okay. And then the first three can, can sit down. Okay. May I thank the chair for the, the opportunity to participate? My question is, ignoring the forward motion implied by the term post, mm. is there or was there a society that operated with near post-capitalist principles? Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'm a programmer myself. I actually uh, work on open source projects that you might have heard of, uh, like Bitcoin and some others. So essentially, I'm working for free. <laughs> and large companies who make a lot, a lot of profit use these open source and free uh, Libre software, uh, and they make money and they don't pay for any of this. Are we, and me and my colleagues, are we sleepwalking off a cliff, or is this maybe some sort of model for some post-capitalist future? Thank you. And one more. Uh, Derek McCauley, uh, Chief Officer of the Unitarians in Britain. Does the social market economy of post-war Germany and mainland Europe, uh, based on Christian Democrat traditions, offer a model to supersede neoliberalism? Thank you. And do you want to jump in? Yeah. Um, those are really big questions. Um, I'm going to leave Paul to deal with the principles of capitalism in the past. I mean, I personally think that, that when you're creating free stuff and it's captured and monetized by others, there's something really, really wrong going on. It's a form of theft, actually. Yeah? And I'm with Philip here. There are 201 million people in the world that currently do not have work and do not have paid work. And the result of that, if you look at the Middle East, if you look at Egypt, where there are millions of young people with no jobs, the result of that is chaos. And the result of that is authoritarianism, because they are subject to market forces, uncontrollable, yeah. to market, uncontrollable market forces, they believe, and they believe there is no one willing to manage and control those forces, and so they do look to authoritarian leaders for protection. So I worry about this working for free. Um, as for Christian Democrat societies, I very much doubt. Europe is, a, is, is currently led by Christian Democrats. It's insisting on a rule-based form of economics, which is turning out to be incredibly oppressive, divisive, and dangerous in that it's fostering, in my view, as, in, as Paul said, in, in new forms of fascism. So I, I, I don't feel that that is the way forward. Um, and, I, and I have very strong reservations about what's happening in Europe at the moment, as everyone else does here on this platform, I think. Um, to take the last question first, um, there's a lot to like about the social market economy. Uh, if you look, go back to Rupke or Utkin, who were, they were wonderful um, thinkers in the 1930s who saw the d danger that Nazism represented, and they wanted to smash the concentration of wealth. The thing that I always find, and I've always argued this, so odd about our free market society, is we're completely incapable of enforcing competition laws. Our competition laws and our competition philosophy sits alongside vast monopolies that we cannot recognize, let alone tackle. And in some ways, the failure of the social market model is that failure. We fail to 
broaden our concepts such that we can recognize the new monopolies that are staring us in the face. Also, the so social market philosophy became welfareist, i.e. it went high leftist, and then it went neoliberal. So the, in a way, it's been completely uh, defeated. As to the first question, um, I think if you look at human society, if we're being technically accurate, there's been many non-capitalist societies. But those societies haven't been marked by an absence of cruelty or the absence of injustice. It reinforces my point that, the, that capitalism is only a tertiary outcome of something more profound. And what is more profound is the original question, what would be just? How do we order society such, such that this hu needless human suffering doesn't occur? And that question is as valid in tribal societies as it is in feudal societies, as it is in capitalist societies. And it will be equally valid in post-capitalist societies. Um, on the question asked by the developer, the, the computer programmer, about uh, uh, what's happening, first of all, most of economics can't even get their he its head around your existence, sir. They just can't. You, you are not acting as homo economicus. You are not doing what, what uh, Maggie Simpson would, was, was taught at the Ayn Rand School for Tots in that famous Simpson episode, uh, where, where the, on the wall it is written, helping is futile. Um, you, you are misbehaving. And, and, but I think there are a lot of misbehaving people. In, and technology is creating them. That is, what, one way of looking at what you are doing is that you're throwing your product into a gift economy. Some, some people work for open source corporations and they are paid, but the, the product is thrown in. Some people simply write Wiki, Wikipedia pages. 27,000 people write Wikipedia pages. Um, that's 10,000 more than ever wrote the Encyclopedia yeah. Britannica, but, and 90% of them were dead. And let me just finish. I think that is the future. That is the route beyond capitalism. We nurture it, we grow it, and we stop worrying about what are you going to do? Pay, every, pay everybody? Pay people? Um, pay people micropayments for the free stuff that they throw, it, throw into this gift economy? It's, it's already beyond that. It exists. It is a third kind of industrial economy. Sorry, Anne. I, I, I want to agree that it's wonderful that people cooperate around Wikipedia, for example. It, and it, it, it inspires me uh, into believing in the human spirit, spirit and human potential. But Wikipedia is not monetized. Very deliberately, its owners will not monetize that knowledge and will not... But other sources of, of co collaboration and, and creation are deliberately monetized. All the big banks use your open source software. So I think it's really, it's ingenuous and naive to think that we're all, I, I believe in cooperation and collaboration. I think it is a wonderful thing, and I think it does challenge capitalism, but capitalism is capturing yeah. that yeah. and monetizing it, and that's the problem. We, we have no idea how to crowd in the world we want and crowd out the world we don't. And um, we simply lack the techniques uh, to do it. And I think we need um, serious analysis. Uh, and I welcome Paul's work on that. 
uh, but that's really the agenda in front of us. And here's the terrible political challenge we face. Unless we can create new forms of political consensus that bridge north and south, uh, cut across all forms of sociological division, ignore race, cut across class-based economies, we're not going to get there. And unless whatever you argue is equal to that, you're, you're, not, you're not even on the starting grid. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take two more questions, but as they're speaking, let's say the next batch of names. April Alexander, Aris Cominos, and Stephen Hill. If we could take, if there are three people ready, the next three questions. Hi, um, I'm an ecologist. And my question is regarding a moral agenda. Um, to me, it's a concept that in practice is all very well for the middle classes, both individuals and corporations, um, with the luxury of time and money to make ethical choices. So my question to you, the panel, is how do we engage those with overwhelming worries and priorities of modern life in these proposed collaborative and social change behaviors? Thanks. Thank you, and the next one? Um, just to thank you, Paul, for a very provocative uh, book. Um, I'd uh, put my question in before anybody had said anything, and uh, now I've got 10 questions, so that's the degree of provocation in, uh, in a lot of what you're talking about. If we could just but, have one, that would be great. Um, to, to s my question really uh, relates to something you said at the end, so I suspect... Um, you can uh, take things forward a little bit, but you portray the internet and social networks and the in internet of things as a subversive force in this capitalist society. And you've elevated it to an historic level. The level of class conflict and social revolution in bringing about social and economic change. Now, given the crucial role that property and finance play in this neoliberal system, driven by greed and self-interest, how can your new subversive force impact on these? And by impact, I mean change, overwhelm, and ultimately replace them Thank you. Thank you. for I the common good. Great. And we're actually going to take these last two, if you could keep them as succinct as possible, and those will be the final uh, questions from the mic. Uh, David Parrish, I work in careers uh, advice in two academies in one of the less well-off areas of London. And my question is, low-skill entry jobs are disappearing with the advent of automation and new technologies. Will there in the future be any work for the poorly educated and qualified or are they simply the collateral damage for modern market capitalism? Thank you. There are two more questions, so we'll pause there and allow the panel to answer these two and come back to you, too. Who would like to jump in? Um, yeah, um, morality. It's, it's the worst... One of the worst things, I think, in the modern world is that, is that people think morality is a middle-class imposition. Morality or social solidarity is the only thing that kept working class communities together. 
And it's the destruction of that sort of shared value that has taken, and Paul described this very well in his book, stable working class communities to ones of shattered families, large areas run by criminals, and the prevalence of organized crime. And I use morality in a sense of imagining an alternative. And to deny that to working class people is to deny them the, as being the authors of their own uh, stability. Of course, there is the problem of work, and of course, there is the problem of the destruction of work. But I think it's very clear that we're moving to an upstairs, downstairs economy where the middle is taken out and those at the bottom will essentially have to serve those at the top. The only way to tackle that is to create new forms of trade and new forms of ownership between those at the bottom, such that they can themselves become owners rather than just wage workers for those at the top. And so I think the radical economic agenda is creating mass ownership at the bottom and the ability to trade. That seems very unlike the world we're currently living in. Thank you. Whoever would like to jump in. Um, on the question of the moral agenda, for me, the church and people of faith have had as their mission the setting of a moral agenda. And that mission, in my view, has been subordinated um, by the church and by others in our society. And so I worry about the, fa the failure of the church to play a leading role in setting the, the moral agenda, both in our society but also globally. And I think about the church when it is most effective in Latin America. I think about it in apartheid South Africa, where it challenged those immoral and amoral forms of economic organization. And I wish that people within Christian organizations and within faith organizations would stand up and assert those, that agenda once again. But I'm afraid it's, it it's not, has not happened. But when it does happen, it's extraordinarily powerful, as I discovered with Jubilee 2000. And as we found that when we do mobilize and we do organize behind a moral agenda, we can have a, a profound economic impact. And so I would argue that that is a model and that we should be doing much more of it, especially now. And especially when work, as, as the last questioner said, uh, when people are going to be left to, uh, as collateral damage, as when they're going to be shut out of the workforce and closed off, as they are with what's happening now. Instead of having, I mean, I agree that there's a collaborative and, and cooperative thing going on out there, but there are also people who are isolated, atomized, lonely, and without work. Work is one place where it's possible to be social. And, and actually, when you're workless, you lack that ability, um, as well as not being able to earn an income. So I. <laughs> I think, I fear that we are moving towards a workless society and we cannot celebrate it, we cannot welcome it because it poses a very grave threat to our social and if I may say so also to our ecological limits and, and stability. One of my worries about 
this all is that also there's a moral issue around the whole question of endless technological advance. Mm. It assumes mm. that we will always have mm. the resources mm. for that technological mm. advance, and we do not. We come up against ecological limits, and it must be part of our humility to recognize that. My friend, Professor Steve Keane, tells me that we needn't worry about all of those minerals that we use in, uh, in mobile phones disappearing because there's a limited amount of them in the Congo because we can capture asteroids and bring them down to Earth and we'll have as much as we need. Thank well, you. I find that all rather utopian, actually, in one sense, but also it enables us to go past and to ignore the moral obligation to respect the ecosystem in, in which we live. Thank you. Thank you. Paul. Well, do I elevate information? Am I over-elevating it, first of all? I mean, I certainly do think it is a... Well, game changer is a, is a pathetic sort of way of explaining it. I mean, look, if somebody like Leon Walras, the, the economist who invented marginalist economics in the mid-19th century, writes, paragraph one, page one, there is nothing in the economy that is not scarce, and then a hundred years later, along comes information which is abundant, you have to ask, does it disrupt capitalist economics? And simply I say yes. And to that questioner who said, well, you know, what... What, what, what's happening, it's all being captured. That's the theme, isn't it? That it's all terrible because in the last 15 years, we've created a kind of new economy and it's been captured by giant tech corporations. I say, um, you know, as this building uh, proves to us, that history doesn't move in 15-year chunks. That there will come a time when we can capture it back. That is the project at the heart of my book. And when I say we capture it back, it's not containable by states and hierarchies. We capture it by creating a networked democracy, economy, society that can utilize the information in a more socially just and actually a more efficient way. So while, uh, of course, yes, we could spend forever saying how terrible it is that there is a potential, what we're describing is a potential neo-feudalism where the elite capture all the good stuff that arises out of the new kind of economy I'm talking about. Yes, it's terrible, but we have to have a project to stop it that is based on, just as Bretton Woods was, based on the, the, the potentialities of the economy itself. A final thing on low skill, and, and, and it's linked to this idea of morality. Nobody knows better than I do, how important the creation of a working-class morality was at contra counter power to the, the morality of capitalism itself, out of the hierarchies of working-class life, which are only 250 years old in their modern form. I think the, the, the direction of travel is, cannot be reversed. The, the, all political projects, yours in a way is one, but yours goes further than this, but I'm thinking specifically of the Blue Labour project. If only it could be Kinder Kirche Kuka, uh, for the for the workers of East London again, everything could be fine. That's just, that's just not going to happen. One of the best descriptions of that life is in Richard Llewellyn's novel, later Hollywood film, uh, How Green Was My Valley. Llewellyn describes the arc of travel. The, the valley starts out green, it ends up black, the working class society flourishes and then it begins to decline. And I think we've seen the beginnings of the end of it. And, and, and I'm a big fan of, you know, of, of the idea originated in Italian Marxism that what's replaced the factory is society. And we have the whole of society to find each other across. The social factory, as the Italian neo-Marxists call it, is the new factory. And 
the new equivalent of the agent of history is everybody who is networked. It's not a popular thing on, on the far left, it's not a popular idea, but that is, that is the, the essence of my change project. We find each other across this new vast factory floor where we all produce financial consumption and production value for the system and we take it off them in the same way as we wanted to do in the 20th century. We wanted to take the wealth from the elite, but the way of doing it is going to be through different instruments, vehicles and structures. Thank you. Boom. We've got two questions that I do want to take as you've been so patient. Keep them as short as possible if you can. We'll finish at 8.05 as we started five minutes late. Thank you. The question is, uh, the so-called sharing economy trend, Uber, Airbnb, etc., only exists because through global networks, it commodified trust between peers. Is there any way through the same scales and same networks to gain this trust back towards a shared future? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Uh, this is another crack at the land for the common good question earlier. Um, land is the most powerful medium for the transfer of wealth from um, people on low and median incomes to those who are already very wealthy. So what in practical terms can your ideas about information, information technology um, and even morality do to get from where we are now to somewhere where we can really weaken the grip of land as a force for social and economic inequality. Thank you. I'm also going to throw in one final Twitter question for Paul, and we'll work down the table in this direction. And please, if you could wrap this into your closing mm. remarks in answering these final questions. Paul, the Twitter question is, given all you've said, why isn't your book free? <laughs> and I'll give him a moment. It's <laughs> a good question. Um, that was from Where the Marty At, to give full credit. Uh, Philip, if you want to answer the questions as you can and offer any closing remarks. Um, why isn't Paul Books free? Well, it doesn't deserve to be. It's worth paying for, but leaving that aside. Um, what to say? I think the land question is particularly apt. I mean, the obvious answers are land value tax, restoring uh, and, and restoring the commons. The thing that interested me is if you read Daniel Defoe's Travels Through England, which is a point where England moves from one uh, feudal age to the industrial age, what you have there is almost a fulcrum point. And you get a lot of people who are trying to set up new factories talking about the workers saying they don't work, they just go and live off the hedgerows and they live off off the commons. But really what they were talking about there mm. was actually the mm. idea that people could produce their own. Human beings weren't just wage earners, they were also producers. And I think the real radical politics isn't around making things free, it's around redistributing the producer-consumer relationship and actually recognizing all human beings have assets and all human beings can be producers. And if we can create that mass production, not of standardized goods, which I think can be free, but of unique goods, and after all, what is the most unique good we all value? Friendship. That's what we value, I would argue, almost above all other things, which is a unique interpersonal good. And if we can concentrate on these goods and these mm. products, mm. then we can make other scarcities scarce. Thank you. 
Right. I mean, I, I thank the, the questioner for the question about land, because I think yeah. it is fundamental to this debate. And I want to respond to what Philip said earlier about the scarcity of assets and how they've risen in price, contrary to what Paul is saying about falling prices. The point is that what is happening to capitalism now is that it's capturing all of those assets, privatizing them and monetizing them. Above all, using assets with which to earn rents. So when a rich man, an oligarch, buys a painting from Bonhams, it's not so that he can hang it in the wall and raise his status. It's so that he can bury it in a, a cold vault in Dubai while it just simply effortlessly increases in value. This is the whole point about the capture of all of the Earth's assets because they can earn rent. Every a, a, a veteran car, a vintage car, a, a work of art, a brand, intellectual property, Intellectual property earns you rent. Mm. And who on earth would want to work? Who on earth would want to engage with the land and with labor when effortlessly you can buy a work of art and wait for its value to rise, because after all, its value, you believe, is going to rise inexorably, capture the gain, the capital gain from that, and become extraordinarily wealthy, and deny that asset to others who would want to see it, who'd want it to be publicly uh, shown. And the, exactly the same thing is happening to every aspect of land. Now, I think we live in an economy which has a, producti a production sector, a productive sector, and it has a consumption sector. I think Paul is often talking about collaborative consumption rather than collaborative yeah, production. Yeah. Thank you. But also, we have now increasingly a rentier economy. And that is becoming more dominant, is becoming dominant over both the, the production and the consumption side of our uh, global economy. And that is the threat that we face. Thank, Thank you. you, Anne. And final words from Paul. Well, it's a great question, why isn't my book free? And I'm sure that my um, colleagues from Penguin down here are kind of wor worried about what I'll say. Um, I can't give you the file path to whoever's pirated it, wherever it is. I'm sure there is a pirated copy somewhere. But that's kind of beside the point. What, many people who work at the, in the intellectual creativity, I make it not intellectual, it's a stupid word, they, making ideas, uh, already work in a mixed economy. They work in an economy where the state provides some of the income where the private sector and the market does and where free stuff happens. I, like the person said, a lot of my tools are freely produced collaborative information goods like Wikipedia, like um, the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy, which is probably to me rivals Wikipedia as, as one of the great free products of the, of the collaborative age. Um, so what do I do? I mean, uh, if you want to have your book marketed across 10 countries and um, fill St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, believe me, because I've always wanted that, but, but working with a tiny non-profit um, uh, uh, publisher seldom achieves that outcome. Uh, working with one of the major capitalist um, information companies seems to have done it. But, um, but my, think about my work, 12 years worth of BBC, free stuff. All right, the state paid for that, or U5 taxation, Channel 4, a non-profit um, state-owned company, um, likewise uh, produces that. When I wrote, I had this bee in my bonnet about writing something about 
what, what would fictional characters look like if the networked individual, the new world, the new human being I'm writing about, became more and more prevalent? And, and I went back to this essay by Virginia Woolf where she tries to describe the new human being of 100 years ago. The essay is called... Um, uh, it, Mrs. Brown is in the title. I forget, I'm forgetting it. It's free online. You can get it. You can get the PDF. And I, I thought, oh, I want to write a big thing about that. But nobody really wanted to publish it, or they wanted to delay it, or they didn't want to pay me much. So I just published it for free, a 5,000-word essay. And what happened to me? It was like giving a gift into a gift economy, and so on a sort of Trobriand Island anthropological gift economy. Because we, weirdly, more, came, more positive came back because I gave that intellectual property away under a Creative Commons license than it would have if it had ever tried to get it published in a, if it had been published in a magazine. So I think, look, we're in a privileged position. People who are bricklayers or window cleaners can't do so much of that, and they have to uh, inhabit their free stuff world is, is in the non-work world. But I think it, it's just the experience, try it. Try, try going away and it, to the best of your ability, throwing something free out into the, into the gift economy and see whether or not it is so irrelevant or niche or whatever. I don't think it is. I think many of us are, all we're doing is, is, is systematizing that, you know, the old charitable uh, principles which lie at the heart of all human uh, societies and existence. But it's not just charity and it's not just a hobby. It's not just sort of a niche off the side of a desk activity anymore. I think information technology has brought this human willpower to create collaboratively to the center of economics and, and, and I don't just think it's a good idea. I think collaboration, which was the old name for what working class communities tried to do, was a better principle than collectivism. Thank you. Thank you to our wonderful panel. Thank you all for coming tonight. If you have a book that you would like signing, Paul will be down here uh, for can a few minutes say, at the end. Can we, can we thank St. Paul's for making this free? Thank you for coming to this free event. <laughs>